Welcome to Women Who Sarcast. I'm Kathy Barron. My guest is an award-winning musician, playwright, actor, and author of the book, Sing Louder, The Stories Behind the Songs. She's currently producing The River Rock Project. Her mantra is, if you don't know the words, sing louder. Please welcome Megan Carey. Thank you for being on the show, Megan. Thank you for having me, Kath. It's great to be here. So we met on the AIDS ride, and we kind of talked a little bit about this before um, the show. From San Francisco to L.A., it's a seven-day ride, and I believe it was in 1999, right? Yeah. Yep, 1999, because 98, I did the Boston to New York ride. Right. And we were talking about that on the ride, how you did the Boston ride, and it was different, right? Oh, yeah, because it's short. It's only three days, and it's in the fall going from Boston to New York as opposed to in the spring going to the desert. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was a very different thing. And, and for the Boston ride, I trained all summer in, on the East Coast mm-hmm. and, um, and then did the ride in the fall, whereas for the, the California ride, it was in the spring and it was – you know, it's snowy and, and it's not good biking weather in New York City where I was. So so I just didn't train. Right. <laughs> it was kind of bad. Yeah. So how was that experience for you overall? Well, it's interesting. The, the Boston to New York age ride for me was an incredible experience. The, the, the California age ride was a... A little scary because I got dehydrated and picked up an ambulance and you know mm-hmm. part of that. Um, and it was a different. I mean, I guess I I was really battling with physical issues, so so it was so so much more challenging. But the thing that was there that was that I still just loved um, is you know you're all you're all riding together and then you, you set up your tents. And you have this whole tent village and, and everybody's, everybody's, you know, connecting and, and we're all there for the same reason. And so there's this really great sense of camaraderie and support and, and like you're doing something that matters. The San Francisco to L.A. ride was so much bigger. You don't feel it quite as much as in the Boston to New York ride because it's just so many more people. But I still felt. I felt like I was a part of something important, and, and I liked that. O- overall, I, I thought it was a, an experience that I'm glad I had. That's basically how I felt. And we met on a SAG bus, which means <laughs> that we didn't get to finish that day. And so a big old bus picked us up and you know took us to the next stop. So that's how we actually met. We didn't actually meet riding. We met riding the bus. Yes, we did. You sent me that picture of us sitting on that picnic bench, and I thought, I remember that. And I remember how we were both so bummed. You're just so bummed that we couldn't ride. Yeah. And then I remember talking for a while, and then there was that moment of like, yeah, but maybe I'm a little relieved, too. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It was hot and dry, and the hills were bothers, man. Yeah, the hills were killers, and it was like... Days that was like 80, 100 mile days. And it was, yeah, it was pretty intense. There were some really, really strong riders. Mm-hmm. More strong riders than, again, than in the Boston to New York one. Uh, so in Boston to New York, I, I felt like I was with a whole bunch of people who were just like, 
I can do this. Go on. I can do this. I've never done 100 miles in a day before, but I can do it. Whereas the California ride, it felt like with people, oh, you know, I do a century four times a week. Right. It I'm takes like, them a half an hour to ride it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Back in a beer with outside your tent with your flamingos. and Right. Like they didn't do anything all day. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely had the extremes as far as, you know, levels of experience for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people in the California ride had a lot of heart. And that's what, you know, not to say that the Boston people didn't, but I think that's what drove a lot of people in the California ride was they had the heart. And like you said, we were all there for the same reason. And that's what motivated people. Yeah, and you know, you think about all the people that are involved that weren't riding, like all the people on motorcycles who, who you know, uh, let us know which way to turn and 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 kept us kept an eye on everybody. All the SAG vehicles, all the places that the people that set up the pit stops, mm-hmm. and then the med tent people, which you know, right, we're intimately acquainted with, and uh, it's it's amazing. It's amazing how they create this whole community this whole village around it so how did you start as a musician oh my this is it's uh, interesting too that you're segueing from that into this <laughs> um, because because i I'll, I'll tell you the story of the boston major ride and my music but um i started writing music because uh i was engaged to be married to a musician and um he passed away suddenly mm-hmm and when he died, I I wanted to keep something. I just I just had a very strong sense that it was necessary for me to keep making music because what I did I, I was not a musician, but he played guitar and sang and he sang all the cover tone songs that you love to wave a pint to you know like uh, you know Bobby McGee and of Montgomery like all the all those songs and uh, and I would sing the the harmony to the chorus mm. and I really liked it and, it and it felt somehow it felt like what I was supposed to be doing so when he passed away um I thought that 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 was what I was going to take that's what I was keep and no one was going to no one could take that from me and I was an actor at the time and um that's how we met we met doing a, a show where a musical where all the guys play instruments because he's not an actor but but he played guitar so when he died I picked up his guitar and I figured out how to play some things and I um I didn't know any songs start to finish I only knew the harmony to the chorus so (laughs) so I was like well okay and I I was sitting I remember I was sitting in a in the room this room in the cast house for a show that I was doing up in in the Catskills and with this Martin guitar figuring out some some tunes and I was like "Uh, I don't have I don't know any songs and so I just wrote them like I'm just make up my own and I and I did and and I just sang them in my room but then some of the guys in the cast um heard me heard me playing music and they're like what do you come out here play those songs but what are you playing and I was like I don't I don't know how to play I don't know how to, I'm just I this is just a these are things I'm making up and they're like come play them for us and so I started playing them for for other people and and once you do that it's like um it becomes it's, it's sort of like a priming the pump Right. People are asking for them, so they start coming out more, and, and you start you start seeing how people respond and, and feel, and and it makes you feel something, and that makes the next thing come out, and um, 
And then I, all of a sudden I was a songwriter. So how did you find your inspiration to write songs? Well, when I first started writing, I simply wrote my grief into music. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about, it was all about loss and moving through grief. Um, because when you hear me say this, it shows a lot, but it's so true. And I know this because I tried, but you cannot go around grief. Mm-hmm. You can't go over it. You can't go under it. You have to go right through it. And uh, so that's that's how I did that. I, I just I wrote it into songs. And, and I could be as – sometimes, you know, when words aren't, aren't enough, music comes out, right? So there, there was some pretty um, cathartic music coming out for me. And, uh, and I never intended to have anyone else, you know, I, I wasn't making it for anyone else. I was an actor and I had to, I, I, I already had to audition to be in a show, to get, I'd have to get cast in a show to do what I love to do. But with music, it's like nobody, nobody can tell me I can or cannot do this. Mm-hmm. I can do what, right? And I'm never, and I decided I was never going to make music for my living. <laughs> Well, that changed, but um, yeah, that's what you told yourself. Yeah, <laughs> I'm never gonna do that. I'm never gonna like it. I'm never gonna. This is always gonna be just for me. And um, but the thing was that, but that my music really, really is not about just me. Like I don't I, just sitting alone in my room making making music is not the healing part for me. The healing part is playing it for you and having you having it filter back to me through your stories and your emotions and. And then, then it's healing for me. So that's a great story. And since we've met, you've gotten married. Mm-hmm. You've had two kids, a son and a daughter, right? Yep. And so, how has being a mother changed or not changed you as a musician? Oh my gosh! Well, I mean, it it, it did. It certainly did. I had my daughter first, and um, first of all, I met my husband. Uh, his band was opening for mine at CBGB's, this rock club in New York. We were playing in the gallery, which is where us singer-songwriters played. Uh, it's a famous old club, and I was doing a, the release of my second record. He showed up, and I did one look, you know, he, he was just all lit up. He's he was just amazing, he was just a ball of energy. And I guess he heard us doing the sound check and came over to talk to me. If you meet Peter, he's still this way. He was raised in Japan, and... Um, by a British mom, so he's very he's very reserved mm-hmm. until he gets crazy, and then he then it's just crazy. <laughs> so he's talking to me, and uh, and he's all lit up, and he's got this big blonde mane of you know like an afro, big big blonde hair, and he's wearing a velvet shirt and chains, and he's you know getting ready to go on and with his his band, and he's talking to me, and he's and and I'm like I'm getting that he wants to talk to me. But, but as I'm like, he's kind of cute and I'm, as I'm like kind of chatting him up a little bit, he's totally giving me the, he's like backing up for me. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I'm like, oh, he's gay. You know, obviously he's gay. He's really, <laughs> he's really nice. He's not trying to steal my mailing list and he's not trying to get, you know, get me to go home with him. So, okay. So he's gay. So this is great. So we change our, <laughs> right? So we exchange um, uh, emails, and at the time, this is back, this was way back, so this was my second record, which was released in 19, in 2000, 
in 2000. So this is back when you didn't, we didn't have smartphones or anything. So you exchanged emails and then you, you had to email, you had to be at home by your big performa that was on your desk right. for emails. And my God, you got so many. You got like one day, one day, I think I got like eight emails in one day. It was, <laughs> oh my God, right? Uh, so anyway, so we exchanged emails and then I went off on tour uh, and when I came when I came back and I couldn't check emails, right? So I came back and and I had all these emails because I've been gone for so long. I had to have forty five emails. It was crazy. Oh my but god, forty five coming in those two months. So I went through and there was a couple emails from this guy named Peter Farrell and I was like, I can't I couldn't remember I didn't remember his name. I'm really bad with names anymore. Mm-hmm. So like so I deleted them. And I just I deleted him. And wow. that was and uh and Talk then, about being put in the friend zone. I know, right? <laughs> so I'd kind of forgotten about the encounter. And then apparently someone who had, one of my fans who had come to the show at CBGB's had heard Peter's band. They were incredible, KFM, and gotten on their mailing list. So they went. this guy went to a KFM show and saw Peter and said, oh, you know, remember that, 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 that young woman you opened for at CBGB's was... Uh, I'm a big fan of hers. I'm going to go up and see her up in Piermont next week. You should come. And it just so happened, like this is so fate. It just so happened that Peter was um, working with a friend on a deck, and up who lives like, like literally a five minute walk from the venue where I was playing. Mm. He was all day working on this deck with this guy. So he decides to come. So he shows up and he starts talking to me after the show. And we're talking for a little while. He's really nice, you know, Philip guy, whatever. And, and he's like, he's like, all of a sudden he stops. He goes, you remember me, right? I was going like, to ask if it, if you remembered seeing him. <laughs> God, no. Oh, no. I said, not even a little. I'm sorry. He's like, Peter, Peter Farrell. And I'm like, yeah, still no. <laughs> okay. You got to understand. I, I am not, it's not, I'm not, I'm not an airhead and I'm not cruel. I, he, he had, in the in the three months that that I or actually it was more like it was from January to July, so a bunch of months, he um, had lost a, a good amount of weight. Mm-hmm. So he was just a bit different body type. He cut his hair, so his hair is now short, not this big blonde afro, and he's wearing you know work clothes. He's not wearing velvet and chains and and things. And so I'm I'm seeing it in a completely different context. Okay, we'll give you that at least. Yeah, come on. So <laughs> and then and then when I. Re- figure out who it is. I'm like, oh, oh my gosh. And I'm like, oh, the gay guy from the show. <laughs> like, did you say that to him? No, I didn't. Okay. I did not. All right. I didn't, but I, <laughs> I was thinking it and, and I was also really, he's such a good guy. And I knew, and I was like, this is a good guy. And, and I just gotten to the point, it was exactly seven years since Matthew had died. And mm-hmm. I was at this point where I was ready to finally meet somebody and here's this guy and I'm like, oh, he's cute, but he's, he's, he's funny, he's smart, he's incredibly talented, which is always, you know, really yummy. Yeah. Um, and, and I, 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 you know, I just I really like him and, and I'm so bummed he's gay because, you know, he's not going to like, he's not going to want the same thing I want. So I decided to just take care of figuring out what was going on. So I, I, we were all standing outside. It was me. And Peter and his buddy, who is this gorgeous man that um, 
that he was helping build the deck. And uh, they were obviously, you know, it was obviously his boyfriend, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> and then there was a guy who had invited him to, to come to the show. And then there was that he had brought his friend Dennis, who was a friend, a friend of mine, who, you know, I, who I know well. So, so we're all standing there. And I was, so I, I, I had to figure this out. So I said, like, how do I do this? Like, oh, well, so this is so nice. You know, I said, and so, so like me, just me standing out here, all the, all, all the, the men who could be eligible, except for, they're all gay men. And, and, <laughs> and the guy who, who had come up, who had come up with it to, to invited Peter's like, oh, I'm not gay. In fact, I came here to ask you on a date. And I was like, oh, no, thanks. And then Dennis is like, Oh my God, I'm as queer as a three dollar bill. And he is, he's just <laughs> flamboyant. So Dennis was like, I know Dennis, I know. And, uh, and then Peter's friend didn't say anything. And Peter said, well, I, I have no issue with, you know, whatever anyone's sexuality is, but I, I like, I like women. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, that's good. So we're, this is a good thing. <laughs> And then, That's uh, one way to weed it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I got this email from this Peter Farrell guy, and this time I kept it. On AOL.com, I'm sure. It was on AOL.com. <laughs> <laughs> so that was all to say that I met I met a musician. And uh, sometimes I wonder if, if Matthew didn't have, that was my late fiance, if he didn't have a hand in this, like, okay, so you need to, you need to like, be making music. So that you can meet this guy because he's the, exactly the person that you need to spend the rest of your life with. Yeah. And that's then we have these two fabulous kids. And and when I when I met Peter, I was I was very burned out of being in music. I was I was gonna I was gonna leave the road. I'd been out on the road for a long time, and I'd broken my back and all these things that happened. And I was just like, yeah, I'm just done doing touring and hustling music. And and he was like, but wait. I, I love what you're doing. I want to do that too. You can't stop to, I want to, I want to tour with you. And I was like, Oh, really? <laughs> so, so he kept me in the music thing. Yeah. Uh, long enough for me to get over my burnout. And then we had kids and, and we, we had to leave the road because we, we had, we had our daughter. Now when I was pregnant with her and when I was, when she was quite young, I didn't write a lot. I didn't, she was my creative mm-hmm. All my energy went into her. Um, yeah. But, but then pretty soon, Pretty early on, uh, at least by the time my son was born, which is two and a half years later, I realized that I, for me to be who, you know, the, my best me, I had to be making music. And I wanted them to see mommy be her best self and right. to see that, 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 that following your dreams and, and doing what you're passionate about is important and fulfilling. Do you find inspiration with your through your kids now? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um, I went through this period when they were young, when I first started writing again, when I, a lot of what I was writing was was coming through their eyes. Mm-hmm. And now it's not so much that they're, they're also older, um, but there's a, I think my music has a definitely a sense of joy that was not there when I first started writing music, but it's not just the joy. It's the, it's the, there's this security that I have a a real sense of, of, of family and knowing 
that I'm that I'm where I'm supposed to be and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Although sometimes I feel like I'm not in the very moment doing the right thing, which is <laughs> often. But um, <laughs> I think a lot of moms can say that, <laughs> or people in general. Oh yeah, but but I know, but I know that like this in the big overarching picture, this is this is who I am. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. So that that has affected my music. So it's not so much about searching. Are they uh, musically inclined as well? Yes. Um, my daughter, they both had, were made to play piano from uh, pretty early on, uh, age five for Clara. And then for Quinn, my son, it was uh, at age six. And so they both play the piano. Clara plays quite well. She also, you know, gets inspired and writes her own stuff. Quinn is, plays piano and he plays trumpet with the school band, but he doesn't, he's not that into it. What he's really into is he is a drummer. Oh, nice. Very good. Yeah, he's, a, he's got a, an incredible, he's got an innate sense of rhythm and it's, it's, it's nice. He's got, he's, he's good. He's got good time and, and he loves it. That's great. I wanted to find time that we could start working on some songs as a family. Quinn really wants to play drums with us mm-hmm. on, our, on our song. Clara is now at a age. I don't think she's as interested in wanting to play with mommy and daddy. So that's, that might be why it's not <laughs> happening. It could be the sound of music family. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> or the Partridge family. Partridge but family. I, that's a little bit more relatable. Yeah. <laughs> no, but they hate that. They're like, no, we are not the Partridge family. Like, oh, come on. I loved them. Even for a little bit. Come on. And I want that bus. That bus, if anything, get the bus. The bus and the bell bottoms. Yeah. You know? That's all that's all I need. That seems achievable, probably more than you guys becoming them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So most of the venues that you perform at are like festivals and music venues. And given the situation that, you know, we're all shelter in place, how are you able to continue to perform during this situation? Well, first of all, I have to say, um, that grief thing again, I had to grieve the loss of some really sweet gigs that I was so looking forward to and, and festivals that I love going to. Oh, oh, it was just, as they, as they fell off, it was, it was just, and then I felt awful for grieving them. Like, oh, you know, this isn't, someone hasn't, I, I am healthy and, and, Knock on wood, everyone in my family is healthy, and I'm grieving the loss of a show. But it was real; it's it's real, and, and I and I would encourage anyone who's feeling grief over the loss of whatever, whether it's graduation or or a, a trip or anything like that, or a school dance. It's uh, it, acknowledge that it's real; it's real grief, mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's okay. Um, it's it, it doesn't make it any less. Uh, painful, just because it's about a, a thing and not a person. The thing that has got me through is that we are able to stream, live stream shows. Every time we perform a live stream show, I am, I feel right again for almost a week, yeah. you know? I like to read through all the comments. I think there were 300 and some comments on the show uh, last night. But I want to read them all because I, I, I get to relive it and I get to be there and I get to feel what people were feeling. Mm-hmm. So, so that, that's been, been amazing. And then last night, people are starting to get really creative 
I had people pulling up in, in their cars safely distanced from other people and parking out in front and listening. <laughs> and, because you're recording on your front porch. Yeah. yeah. So uh, my, my series is called the Hunker Down House Concert Series. And uh, the last two shows, we brought them out on the porch. And it's just, it, it means that the whole neighborhood comes out and sets up their little, uh, you know, the little fire pits out in the front yard mm -hmm. and and sit around and listen and I can hear them clapping down the block and and my sister came her daughter and and some friends in tow and they pulled up in their cars and uh some friends that that uh, often come and see us live found out that we were doing this show and like well can can we come and and and, and in our car I'm like yeah join the group <laughs> so they came down and well it's good that you have your neighbors yes. that are uh enjoying your music and I think that definitely helps. And I'm sure the energy, having people present, yeah. definitely um, energizes you and Peter. Oh, it makes such a difference. It, I, just hearing the little smattering of clapping, like there were probably four or seven, there were probably a dozen people. And I could, yeah, I could hear them clapping and hooting and, and fast of all, I could hear them singing along. That's Which awesome. Like, yeah. Oh, God, that's my thing. So that was that was just great. That is great. So tell me about the River Rock project and what does that entail? Speaking of singing along, uh, so the River Rock project is a celebration of all that we've achieved in women's equality since we were given the right to vote 100 years ago. Uh, well, we fought for and earned, fought for tenaciously and earned the right to vote 100 years ago. It's also um, about trying to get to the finish line. There is so much more we need to achieve if we want to, you know, to be socially, politically, and economically equal. And to do that, galvanizing women and men to get out and vote. So, but it's what it started out for me was I, I had this this song, River Rock, which is a song that I actually started out writing to my inner critic. To tell her to shut up and step behind the <laughs> oak, right? You know, anybody out there have an inner critic? Because I do. She's mm -hmm. loud, and um, so I, I, I started out writing it to her, and then, um, and then as I as I wrote it, and I got to the the chorus, and the chorus came out of me as I am not silver, I am not gold, no precious metal for you to mold. I am a river rock, tumbled smooth by the rush of life. This life I choose. I started thinking about all the people, all the, all the women who have told their inner critic to step behind the, the yellow line and have raised their voice and made stuff happen in the world and stuff that affects me, like the suffragettes who just fought tirelessly and just kept raising their voice and raising their voice and raising their voice until they were given a vote. Um, so I started singing this for them. Uh, for, for all the women who've been brave and bold enough to speak their truth, and especially when society does not want to hear it. So when we came into 2020, 2020, before it was the year of COVID-19, it was the year of the woman. Mm -hmm. Woman because it's the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, giving us all the right to vote. So I wanted to make a music video of my song, River Rock. Uh, because the other thing about this song is that everybody, whenever I, as soon as I started playing it, um, and now whenever I play 
people sing along. It's just one of those songs that you want to sing along to, and it makes you feel really good to sing along and sing, I am a river rock, tumble to me. It's just, you know, it's just a thing. It feels good to lift your voice, especially with other people. So I knew that for this music video to celebrate the 100th anniversary of, of my right to vote, I wanted to have gather all of these people, women, at least 100 women, and then the men who support and stand with us to sing and I like a big choir and I wanted them to be to come like I'm walking through the woods and they, they join me one time and three at a time and nine at a time and 22 at a time, you know, and just to, to our hundred strong and we get to our destination, which is this thing called the justice bell. And I, I just had this, this, I, the, this whole thing, this whole vision at the center of it was that I, this story that I had stumbled on uh, of the justice bell. Some suffragettes here in Pennsylvania, it was their way of using a symbol like like I use the river rock or, or music to to rally people around their cause, right? So what they did was they they um they decided that they were gonna make a replica of the Liberty Bell. So they made a two thousand pound replica, exact replica of the Liberty Bell, um, except for no, no crack. And they, they were gonna use this to get out the vote. So what they did was they they took the, the clapper, the part of the bell that makes it ring, and they chained it to the side to the side so it wouldn't swing, so it wouldn't ring. And they went around, they put it on the back of a flatbed pickup truck, and they went from town to town with this bell. And they brought people out, you know, they had these big there's pictures of like mass gatherings, mostly men, you know, who are out coming out to see this replica of the Liberty Bell. They all come out and then the suffragettes would make a big show of ringing the bell. And they go to ring the bell, and it wouldn't ring. And they're like, why doesn't it ring? What's going on here? Why doesn't that ring? Why, why is it not making any noise? So, well, it's not making any noise because it's chained. Its, it's voice is chained. It's chained. It can't ring out. Just like, just like you've chained our voices. So we can't be heard. So we're asking you, please unchain our voices and let us be heard. Give us a vote. So they went around Pennsylvania, then they ended up going around the country. And in the end, obviously, the 19th Amendment was ratified. And then this bell went into a chicken coop in someone's backyard for decades. <laughs> really? And then it was finally was pulled out and it was refurbished and it lives um, not far from here in Valley Forge National Park. Mm-hmm. And on August they're gonna they're gonna do this big huge event where they take the, they're gonna put it back on a flatbed truck and they're gonna drive it down to Independence Mall where the Liberty Bell is and Liberty and Justice are gonna sit side by side again at last. Wow, <laughs> that's pretty powerful. Right, pretty powerful. So I, I, it's like, I, this story is, and no one, I, I talk to people who are like, oh, I never heard of that. Like, it's crazy. It is such an incredible, an incredible story, an incredible thing that they did. So I, that is, is at the center of the music video. And then, um, and, and, and the project and the documentary too. But, but, but when, when this pandemic hit, you know, when everything changed, that was one of the things I had to grieve and let go of. Is mm-hmm. that I can, I cannot gather a hundred plus people in one place to make this video. So I'm doing it virtually, 
So instead of having, so it's actually better. Yeah. So again, so instead of just having a hundred people who are here in Pennsylvania and therefore can gather for this in, in, in person shoot, people from around the country, around the world are sending in videos of, uh, of themselves singing along with river rock. And we're, we're building this, this choir, uh, virtually the documentary is obviously going to be going to address how we all shift and jive and, and are able to celebrate and achieve despite, uh, the things that are thrown in our path. Well, and I think it's great because pivot seems to be the word of the year because I think a lot of people are having to pivot and I think that's a great and creative way to still accomplish your vision and not totally lay down and not move forward. So I think this is great and it it involves everyone. Everyone that wants to be involved can be part of that project and I think that's a great, great thing and, you know, I'm sure... Hopefully, eventually, you can make that video that you want. Still possible. The thing is that that you know, no matter what, when when a bunch of us, when we raise our voices together, we're heard. You know, so whether raising it together in one room or in a field all together, or raising it together in the ether, mm-hmm. it's we're still doing it. If I'm speaking or singing or crying out the same thing that you are and and this person and that person, the sound waves will slam into each other and resonate. It will happen. Well, Megan, I really appreciate you being on the show. It's so great to have you on here. It was great to be here. It was really nice to talk to you. And you can find Megan Carey at MeganCarey.com and on social media. Thanks, Megan. Thank you, Kath. And thank you for listening to Women Who Sarcast. Show music provided by Mike Imbasiani. You can find him at mikeimbasiani.com. Mm-hmm.